Welcome to Dialogue Minnesota, conversations about the issues that matter to you. I'm your host, Jim Dubois. The news media is facing significant challenges, declining advertising revenue, stinging criticism from the White House, and an American public with a low level of trust in the press. This week on Dialogue Minnesota, veteran journalist, journalism educator, and former executive director of the Minnesota News Council, Gary Gilson, discusses these troubled times for the news media. He joins us by phone. Gary, welcome to Dialogue Minnesota. Glad to be here, Jim. Well, Gary, first of all, tell us a little bit about your background and how you ended up being the executive director of the Minnesota News Council. Yeah, well, I started in journalism as a reporter at the Minneapolis Star. The Star was the afternoon paper, the Tribune, with the same ownership with the morning paper. And I stayed there three years, loved every day of it, but I really wanted to work in television. So a former classmate of mine at Columbia Journalism School called me one day and said, there's a job at the public TV station in New York. Would you like to try for it? I said, yes, I got the job. And I spent 13 years in New York working in commercial and public broadcasting. And it was very rewarding. I loved the opportunities I had. I worked with great people. And then I was teaching at Columbia and running the minority journalism training program. And seven years after a woman named Gail Christian graduated from that program and became an NBC News correspondent, she called me and said, I want to hire you to work for me. Well, getting hired by a former student has to rank as one of the greatest thrills in the world, if not the eighth wonder. And uh, I went to Los Angeles for four years. And I came back here to host a show at uh, public television here in the Twin Cities. And while I was working there, I was invited to serve on the Minnesota News Council. The News Council was founded in 1969-70 to help resolve complaints that people from the public had against news organizations. And it was seen by some news organizations as threatening. But we worked very hard to reinforce the idea that the News Council was also there to help news organizations develop public trust by avoiding lapses that led to complaints. So I served on that News Council for six years with uh, 12 journalists and 12 non-journalists. None of them had an axe to grind. They just wanted to see a civil society with trustworthy news media. So some time passed after I served on that, and I was working uh, at Channel 2 and uh, then at Channel 4, and they needed a new executive director at the Minnesota News Council. And in 1992, I decided that uh, it was important to do that kind of work, and I applied for the job, and I got it. And I served 14 years. So the News Council lasted 40 years. I left in 2006, and it uh, lasted another three or four years. And the reason it went out of existence is that uh, news organizations began to invite people to get in direct touch with reporters, printing reporters' names at the bottom of their stories with their email address. The trouble with that system of accountability is that it wasn't public. If somebody had a complaint and they got in touch with a reporter or an editor, uh, whether they resolved it or not remained a mystery, and uh, there was no open discussion. The virtue of a news council was that these conversations took place in public. Half the complaints in the 40 years were resolved in favor of the complainant, half in favor of the news organization, and it was a very even-handed thing. 
And even if it was a tiny newspaper in some remote place in Minnesota, the principle involved could apply to everybody, including the biggest papers and the biggest television stations in the state. So it was a very important function. And one of the things that has happened as a result of the decline in the revenues of the news business is that the position of reader representative, which the Star Tribune had, and the uh, counterpart at the Pioneer Press, which was a halftime job, those have generally vanished across the face of America. There used to be about 40 reader representatives, and now I don't know how many there may be, but they're not effective any longer. So that's, that's been part of the decline of the business aspect of the news business. Let's talk a bit about some of the other issues in journalism that we're experiencing right now. We're just past two years of Donald Trump's presidency. What sets this president apart from his predecessors, um, among other things, in his frequent use of Twitter and his dismissal of the media calling them fake news? Let's start with Twitter. How is Trump's Twitter feed different from how Franklin Delano Roosevelt used radio or how John F. Kennedy used television? Roosevelt and Kennedy uh, and other presidents uh, had infrequent conversations or addresses to the nation about important issues. The Twitter is a daily and almost hourly function, and it is designed to accomplish a political purpose rather than a national purpose. And it's, I think, very harmful with this particular president, and uh, I'm not talking about Republican or Democratic I'm talking about a particular kind of human being who has not been bred in the system of politics and who doesn't buy into national institutions and continually tears them down. You have a situation where he uh, appeals to his base by calling the news media the enemy of the people. Now, you could be a dyed-in-the-wool Democrat and oppose everything that George W. Bush stood for, but still respect him because he respected the institution of the news media, uh, as the other presidents did. So we're in a very, very touchy time when a lot of the public who are supporting this current president listen to him, to his Twitter feeds, and listen to Fox News, and believe that there's such a thing as fake news, and that the press is the enemy of the people. Nothing could be farther from the truth. How are journalists who cover politics in the White House reporting on Trump's tweets? Is everything the president tweets newsworthy? And how do news organizations decide what to report and what not to report? It's very difficult to ignore anything any president does or says. Unfortunately, he says so much that if you try to cover it all, it crowds out other things that need to be discussed and reported on. And that's bad. Let's look at what the president promised in his campaign, a reform of health care coverage, infrastructure uh, repairs, et cetera, et cetera. Nothing is getting done. We're mired in political fighting that has to do with personality, with charges about fake news, and we're not seeing the Congress able to get anything done. And that's partly a result of this polarization of politics, which is fed by the opposing branches of extreme media, like MSNBC on the left and Fox News on the right, CNN somewhere in the center left. And it's all agitation and accusation and retort 
And the important business of the nation isn't getting done. Gary Gilson is a veteran journalist, journalism educator, and the former executive director of the Minnesota News Council. We're talking about the many challenges that are currently facing the news media. The president has accused the news media of being fake news countless times over his two years as president. How has this affected news reporting of his presidency, and how has this affected the American people's perception of the news media? Well, I'm sure that the people who support President Trump believe him when he says fake news. The people who don't support him or are open-minded and uh, want to consume news intelligently, I think, realize that what he calls fake news is news that puts him in a bad light. And they're not putting him in a bad light because they want to. It's because they have to cover issues on which he said something or acted in a certain way that puts himself in a bad light. You know, there's a great saying about journalism, and I repeat this to my students when I teach at Colorado College. Journalism is reporting what people in power don't want published. The rest is public relations. And uh, he would like the news media to be his public relations agent. When they're not, he accuses them of fake news. Now, the Washington Post keeps a running count on his misstatements and lies, and it's more than 8,800 up to date. Uh, But his base doesn't care about that. But I do not believe that the mainstream news media uh, wants to do anything besides serve the public interest. That's the mission of mainstream journalism. And he doesn't believe that, or he may believe it, but he doesn't want anybody else to believe it. And so he plays them. And his base buys into it. But the fact is that anything he labels as fake news is probably the result of deep reporting that uncovers something that's unfavorable to him. The New Yorker published a recent article on Trump's close-knit relationship with Fox News. The article points to the number of times Trump has granted interviews to Fox, at least 44 versus other major networks, uh, 10 altogether. Is this a worrisome trend, and can you think of other examples where politicians strongly favored one news organization over another? I can't think of an example from the past where that happened. There may have been times when presidents were fed up with the press and didn't want to talk to anybody. But, you know, I read that article, and uh, as many people have observed, that Jane Mayer, the reporter, she's a magnificent reporter, uh, wrote that article for The New Yorker. There was not a lot of news in it, but she brought a lot of strands together. Uh, and she also revealed some things that were new. And that is that uh, not only that Sean Hannity calls the president every night after Hannity gets off the air, and he's virtually a member of the kitchen cabinet, but that Trump watches Fox and Friends in the morning, and even though he may have made a statement the previous day that indicates a policy decision he would like to have put into law. After he hears somebody on Fox and Friends criticize it, he will change and flip. So Jane Mayer was saying that he's in bed with Fox News and reports that Fox News, under the leadership of Roger Ailes, the uh, now deceased Roger Ailes, who was the president who was drummed out of Fox News for uh, sexual harassment and was given a $40 million severance pay, that Ailes said to his staff, I want Trump elected. That's not the language of a journalist. So 
we have a situation in which, oh, how would I put it, a lot of fireworks and not a lot of substance uh, that would help us get where the country has to go. So I think that the media landscape is more polarized than ever, which is counterproductive. The Democratic National Committee just announced they would not support any Democratic primary debates on Fox News. Is this a fair decision by the DNC? Has Fox proven that its agenda favors a Trump Republican administration? As far as I know, Jim, the reporters and editors at Fox News are professionals. It's the talk show portion of Fox News channel that causes the problem. And I think the Democrats are making a mistake by not allowing a debate to appear on Fox News when reporters from the news side are managing it. Because I think that they have demonstrated their ability to be middle-of-the-road questioners. You have several of them, Shepard Smith, Mr. Beyer, uh, and Chris Wallace as examples, who are totally reliable as journalists. So I think the Democrats are making a mistake. Well, with President Trump favoring the Fox News Network and now the DNC deciding that they will not participate in any debate sponsored by Fox, let's talk about that a little bit. Is it getting to the point now where we should be very concerned? Are we seeing a trend where a political party will only adhere itself to a news organization that it believes reflects its own ideologies? Yeah, that's very dangerous, and uh, it seems to be happening. Look, I don't know what it will take to wake people up to the value of responsible, accountable journalism. You know, there's less and less of it because of the decline in revenue to mainstream news organizations. And a lot of people get their news from online services that are aggregating news from other sources. And so it has no depth. What is it going to take? to alert people to the fact that the news media are not the enemy of the public, but are the servants of the public. And when people are angry, as, for example, Trump's base members are angry, I think they're blinded to the idea that the news media are there to help them. Uh, Now, I see more and more reporting from what's called Trump country about how people who voted for Trump are finding out that their own livelihoods are being affected very badly. So maybe that's helping to wake them up. But what can a news organization, a responsible news organization, do except report the hard facts of what, for example, cabinet members are doing that flies in the face of the rhetoric of the campaign? So the polarization goes beyond people's political decisions and how they vote and it goes into the media, so it's a feedback loop. The media reinforcing biases on the part of the public and back in the other direction, and this is a very dangerous situation for the country. Our guest is Gary Gilson, a veteran journalist, journalism educator, and the former executive director of the Minnesota News Council. We're talking about the economic, political, and credibility issues that are currently impacting the news media. Let's talk about the financial challenges that are impacting the news media, particularly newspapers. It's been more than a decade since Craigslist took away much of the classified advertising that supported many newspapers. How are newspapers reacting to this significant loss of revenue? 
Uh, generally speaking, Jim, they're reacting very poorly. There are some exceptions. I think the Minneapolis Star Tribune is one of the few examples of a mid-sized major newspaper that is doing quite well because they're adapting to the digital age. They're investing money in investigative reporting on the print side. The New York Times, late to the game, is adapting to the digital age. But many newspapers haven't. And because they got into trouble, they sold off their interest to venture capitalists who are not journalists. And venture capitalist firms have swooped in and bled those organizations dry, did the layoffs, didn't care about news, cared only about how they could uh, sell off equipment uh, and reduce their investment in news gathering. And that's happened all across the country. And it's also hurt local communities very badly. Now, the Pioneer Press is owned by the outfit that owns the paper in Denver, uh, which lays off people left and right. Uh, and the Pioneer Press is a shadow of its former self, very thin, really feel sorry for the readers of the Pioneer Press who are not getting the service that they need and expect. It's not because the journalists don't want to give it to them, they just don't have the resources. But uh, small communities around the whole country are suffering because it's so expensive to do real reporting. And as you said, Craigslist, the main factor in the reduction of revenue to these organizations was devastating. And look at the Star Tribune. When the Coles family sold it to McClatchy for $1.2 billion, and then McClatchy had to sell it for less than half what they paid for it. And the decline in the allocation of resources for important news gathering just continued. And I applaud the Star Tribune for its comeback. But when John Cole Sr. owned the paper, he had at least three foreign correspondents. Now, just think of that, what that costs to support a foreign correspondent, uh, not only for the salary, but for the living expenses and the the bureau office rentals and everything associated with that. That doesn't exist anymore. Uh, American newspapers, except for the New York Times and the Washington Post, I'm not sure about the L.A. Times, don't have foreign correspondents anymore. So the public is the poorer for all of this. How has the sharing of news stories on social media like Facebook and Twitter changed the way we consume our news? I think most people are so busy in their own lives that they are looking for shortcuts to get the news. And they get it from aggregation organizations and HuffPost, Facebook, Twitter. There's no depth to what they can get on those places. Uh, I asked my students at uh, Colorado College, uh, who are very smart young people, where do you get your news? And they get their news from several websites. Some of them get it from SKIM, S-K-I-M-M, which is an aggregator. But most of them uh, get it from public broadcasting websites, from the New York Times online. I think most, and this is, this is a real warning for the country, most young people do not handle a newspaper. That's really a bad, bad thing because they're not getting the depth that they would get. Now, there are some really encouraging things happening online. There's a nonprofit news gathering organization called ProPublica, 
ProPublica is foundation-supported and also asks for public support, and in the last couple of years has grown tremendously as an investigative reporting arm. And they are hiring all the time now uh, young people to do investigative reporting. That's one of the great hopes. Now, there should be more than one ProPublica. There should be others, and there are some trying to form. That's encouraging. And the ProPublica will do an investigative story and will offer it for free to any news organization that wants to publish it. And sometimes ProPublica partners with a news organization to do a dual approach to an investigation. That's one of the most promising things that exists in journalism today. ProPublica is a not-for-profit news organization. Given the economic challenges that are impacting the for-profit news media, do you think there's an opportunity for more nonprofits to launch news-gathering operations? Well, I don't see anything standing in the way of duplicating uh, or imitating what ProPublica does. Now, when the Denver Post laid off a bunch of people recently, a number of those who remained quit and joined the laid-off people in forming a new nonprofit news-gathering organization, an online news service in Colorado that's doing what ProPublica does nationally. There's nothing to prevent that. Now, it's a tough goal. Some of those reporters are making far less than they did when they worked for the Denver Post, but they have a sense of mission. And if they can convince the public who consumes their news that this is an important function, people will contribute to it the way they contribute to Minnesota Public Radio or to TPT, for example. Gary Gilson is a veteran journalist, journalism educator, and the former executive director of the Minnesota News Council. We're talking about the many challenges that are currently facing the news media. Well, given the trend for more news consumption on social media, that puts pressure on journalists to get content on quickly. And back in the day, say it was television news, if you went to cover a story before videotape, or at least portable videotape, there was a 16-millimeter film camera that shot an interview. It had to come back to the station. The film had to be processed. There were more eyeballs on the content, more time to think about it, uh, look at areas that might require follow-up. And now, sometimes news media organizations, and we're talking mainstream uh, news organizations, will jump on a viral video that pops up on social media. Is the the pressure to get things on first sacrificing accuracy? Yes. Not only accuracy, Jim, but completeness. I watch a lot of television news, not only local TV news, but also network news. And it's astounding how often they'll do a story, and at the end of the story, you have no idea what the fundamental factors in the story are. It's just superficial. And I don't know how editors at that level can allow those stories to get on without answering some fundamental questions. But when you talk about how viral, it could be print or broadcasting. But I once spent a day here in town at a local television news operation as a fly on the wall. I asked them if I could come in and observe how they did their work, because it's different from when I worked in commercial television news in New York. And I found out that they have a list of stories that are trending. And that means stories that get hits online from their audience. And if their audience is captivated by some superficial story, they'll pour resources into doing a follow-up on that. That's a viral infection, I think. It's really tough. 
But, you know, you reminded me of something that I experienced myself. When I graduated from the Columbia Journalism School, I went on an informational interview, uh, and I went to NBC News. And the man who was in charge of talking to young people like me said, uh, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I told him, well, an NBC News correspondent would be nice. And he looked at me and he said, you know, we might hire you someday. You seem to have average intelligence. <laughs> I cherish that moment, Jim. <laughs> but he was a very kind and thoughtful man. And he could have just showed me the gate, but he didn't. He said, we will not consider you until you work five years in a newspaper because we don't have the resources to train and vet your work the way a newspaper does. At a newspaper, anything you write will go through as what you just said, Jim. Three sets of eyes, four sets of eyes, even five sets of eyes before it's exposed to the public. When you have that kind of experience uh, and they whip you into shape, call me and then we'll consider hiring you. So what you just identified as a problem is getting worse. The pressure to follow up viral stories uh, and to base your allocation resources on stories that are trending means that you can't have time to go into stories that are more important. Well, Gary, you teach at Colorado College, and I assume that some of your students are aspiring journalists. Others may be pursuing other majors. What do they think about the state of journalism today? Are they obviously keenly aware of the economic struggles that traditional media is going through? Does that discourage them from pursuing a career in journalism? And uh, what do you tell them? How do you make them keep the faith? That's the central question. First of all, if I have a class of 15 students, maybe three of them want to be journalists. Uh, The rest of them have other things in mind. Fortunately, many of them are considering lives in public service of one form or another. Uh, Yes, they are frightened. They are generally aware of the tight financial situation in journalism. But the ones who want to be journalists have a sense of mission about it already. Uh, And they are ferocious. What happens is at the end of the month, these courses last a month. The students take one course at a time for three and a half weeks. Uh, What happens is that a few of the others who never thought of going into journalism decide they want to try it because the whole focus of what we're teaching there is public service journalism and responsible, accountable journalism. And they get excited by that, And, and they think that's terrific. But they are aware of the difficulties, but I let them know that some of them are going to have to be entrepreneurial. They can't expect to get a job on a paper that's laying people off. So they're aware of what is facing them, but they're committed to uncovering wrongdoing. That's one of the major things that's driving them. And I think that some of the people we're turning out who go into journalism are doing a terrific job. Gary Gilson is a veteran journalist. He also teaches journalism at Colorado College, and he is the former executive director of the Minnesota News Council. Gary, thanks so much for joining us on Dialogue Minnesota. It's a pleasure, and thank you for the opportunity to talk about something that's so important. Dialogue Minnesota, conversations about the issues that matter to you. I'm Jim Dubois. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.